Boyer and an honest man. And my friend said, imagine that, Roger, two blokes in one tomb. There's just something about my profession that doesn't get a lot of a lot of respect. Even when you do something good for a client, you don't get respect. I had a long case for a member of Congress in his company. He was an ethical watchdog in the Congress, and we went for, for years fighting this case. Ultimately, we had an 11-week trial. There were 26 charges, and the company and, and every officer was acquitted of every charge. And I, I quickly wrote the uh, congressman a, a letter, and, uh, and a letter of facts and, and, and announced the results to him. And he said, uh, congratulations, Roger, the greatest victory since World War II, although at somewhat greater expense. Uh, you can't even win by, lose by winning, but win by winning, as it were. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna suggest to you that it's not all our fault and the current chaos in American life uh, uh, needs a little more law not a little less. I was tempted to speak on the subject here today, law to you. But I'm going to instead to speak on Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, and talk about law to you. The Bible says, that Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. I'm going to start off, first of all, with a classical allusion here. Paul talks about the schoolmaster, as you know in Greek, that's the pedagogon. Uh, the pedagogue in ancient times was a person who would come to your door quite early as you began your educational career. He was generally a mean-looking, Frankenstein-like character, sometimes an ex-slave. And his job was not to educate you. His job was to lead you around to various tutors in the trivium and quadrivium of education. There were four main subjects uh, and then three ancillary subjects, the quadrivium and the trivium that made a person an educated man. Now, the purpose of this pedagogue was basically to glower at you every time you were thinking of doing something mischievous and say no. And if you didn't listen to this Frankenstein, he would take out the stick and show you why you ought to say no. In classical times, he was the embodiment of the moral law or moral character. The idea of the Greeks was that to be an educated person was not to accumulate knowledge. If you just fed knowledge into a person without organizing it around the moral law, around virtue, or around character, you created not an educated person, but a monster. And so the purpose of this pedagogue to lead you to every subject of education was to organize your world around the basic a foundation of the moral law. You skipped too fast, he said no. You started passing a note in class, he glowered at you. Uh, and ultimately, as a result of years and years of walking with this no-saying uh, pedagogue, you finally, at the end of your life, uh, end of your educational life, in the late teens or early twenties, you had a big party and you said goodbye to the pedagogue. You didn't need the schoolmaster anymore, not simply because you had completed your educational studies, but because now those lessons of moral character that were outside, external, threatening, imposed on you by this big ex-slave had now become a very part of your life. The whole idea of education was to be able to perceive moral or righteous things by intellectual means. Now, it's my proposition here today that American society and uh, the American public forum and the American family 
and the American church has suffered because the pedagogue has been kicked out. The moral law of God has been thrown right out of many of the basic institutions of American life. I remember once I was walking in San Francisco after completing a deposition in the case and I all of a sudden heard a door open in front of me and here this fellow came out like Superman, you know, sort of uh, horizontal to the ground and then went bum, ba bum, ba bum, 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 into the gutter. A big fellow with forearms like Popeye came after him and said, and you stay out of here. Well, that determined whether or not I was going in that place. I decided probably wouldn't be in my personal interest to do so. But nonetheless, that to me is the picture of what has happened to that schoolmaster that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 3. It started out, I think, years ago with William of Ockham in philosophy. William of Ockham said, you know, you can talk all you want about how things ought to be. Some great purpose of life, the great way things are made, those great non-optional principles that God has designed for human beings. That's, that's interesting, but it's not the quest of real learning. The quest of real learning is not what ought to be, but what is. We don't care whether a flower is happy to see the sun and expressing praise to God. All we care about is what happens with photosynthesis. That's the reason that it opens up. And so therefore the quest of all life is not to determine how things ought to be, what's right and what's wrong, what's moral, what's virtuous. The whole purpose of life is merely to see what, how things really are. Everybody saw it around and said, that seems like a sensible idea. That's the whole purpose of life. It's to, to see things philosophically, uh, examine how they are, to describe things. Not to be didactic and moralizing, not hold people up to some kind of aspiration to be good, but simply determine what is. Now, by the trickle-down philosophy of our time, that worked its way into education. And so you go into the classroom today in many public schools and they say, well, we're going to just clarify our various values. We're not going to try to say anything about how things ought to be, that you ought to be honest or that you ought to be diligent or that you ought to be responsible or that you ought to be punctual like those old McGuffey's readers used to. We're simply going to describe how things actually are. Oh, yes, Johnny, you, you believe in throwing virgins into volcanoes. That's a nice idea. That's a very good relative. What about you? Oh, yes, you believe in serial killing. You're a Christian. Well, I suppose that, yes. And the whole purpose of education, that is to say, no, no value judgments around here. We don't want to talk about how things ought to be. Not around here. Not in our school system. Now, that was, as it were, uh, permanently memorialized by the Supreme Court of the United States, as you know, in the early 1960s, where the Supreme Court came in to the Supreme Court after a prayer. God save this honorable court. And they sat down. They were sitting under uh, engraved stone behind them that has the Ten Commandments written in stone on the, on the Supreme Court. And after that prayer, that word of prayer that was offered in their behalf, uh, sitting under the Ten Commandments of God, they decided that prayer ought to have no place in the public school. And then, in a similar decision, ripped off the Ten Commandments off the walls of any public schools that were benighted enough to have them up. Now, why did they do that? Well, as one justice put it so well, if you have the Ten Commandments up, someone might be tempted to follow them. And certainly we might do psychological damage to have before kids the idea that they shouldn't commit adultery, shouldn't steal, shouldn't swear, should honor their parents and do things like that. Well, not only in the educational realm, but in art. 
You know, art used to serve a didactic purpose. You look at old art, the whole purpose of art was to communicate what was really going on with God's great redemptive plan for the ages. You know, we don't want to talk about what ought to be in art. Let's just describe landscapes, make them beautiful. Let's, let's get the uh, naked human body and examine that. Let's just examine with our art the, the way things are. That happened in, in medicine. There's a fellow who invented a new, a particularly lethal abortion pill. And they asked him, do you ever consider the fact, doctor, that you might be destroying human life when you give that pill to, to, to young women? He said, well, you see, I'm a, I'm a doctor. I'm concerned in scientific cause and effect and the reality of how things are. Uh, I'm not a moralist. I'm not an ethicist. And so, no, it doesn't concern me a bit. That's sort of like the old Hitlerian doctors in the Third Reich. Well, if you dip a Jew in boiling water and then you dip a Jew in cold water and you can monitor, you can see how fast a person will die by dipping this Jew in here in the hot and the cold. And I'm, I'm just a doctor, you know, I'm going, I'm charting this, I'm learning all kinds of things about how the human body actually is. The Führer says what's right. I don't, I don't care about that. I'm not a moralist. You see? And it's, it's extended through our whole medical fraternity today with the willing complicity of doctors and the destruction of over 30 million unborn babies. That's true in our public entertainment. Now, I've never recommended the public entertainments as a way to get moral instruction. But if you listen to some old tapes, you, you'd see that even the popular entertainments of America uh, reinforce the role of the pedagogue, the schoolmaster in American life. You listen to uh, the old Dragnet series. At the end, down would come the Mark IV Productions. Chung, and they'd say, Joe O'Connor is now serving 15 years in San Quentin Penitentiary because he didn't listen to his mother. Uh, uh, the shadow always knew the evil that was going on. You, you start lying and you start rebelling and you start showing bad character and the first thing you'll know, you'll be in jail. That was basically the lesson of a great part of even the popular entertainments of this country. Now the, uh, 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 the chief writer for... Uh, Hill Street Blues said that his basic purpose in life was was to uh, have people question authority and rebel against authority and overthrow the whole moral system of the country. He said that in the Wall Street Journal two years ago. He said what he wants to, to have happen is for every episode the rebel to win. That is to say not only is the pedagogue thrown out but a contrary immoral orthodoxy is imposed through the public media. It's the same way in public health. I served on a major a public health task force on AIDS. And it included one of the chief epidemiologists in America and, and, a, and a various spokesmen for various uh, activist groups. And I was sort of a legal representative. The chairman got out and said, now can we all agree before we start this proceeding that we're going to keep morality out of this? <laughs> there goes the pedagogue. Dum, 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 dum. Off the door. Well, wait a minute. The fact that the average AIDS person has had a thousand different sexual contacts with different men in promiscuous, anonymous, perverted sex, sexual acts, and that's the principal way you get that. Does that have any ramifications for God's order of sexuality and how, how people ought to, ought to live? Is there any ought here in this process? Well, we're not concerned about that. We're concerned about something that is here, and that is our epidemiological concern, and let's keep morality out of it. Fortunately, this old idea has often been put out of the church uh, by a misunderstanding of the purpose of God's moral law to bring us to Christ and then disappear like the schoolmaster of Galatians chapter 3. De Tocqueville came to America. He said, I look for America's greatness. And I tried to find America's greatness uh, in its factories and it wasn't there. 
I tried to find America's greatness in its educational institutions. It wasn't there. I tried to find uh, uh, America's greatness in its natural resources, and there are great natural resources, but it wasn't there. And he said, then I came into America's churches, and I found the pulpits of American churches aflame with righteousness. And he said, then I saw the greatness of America. Now, uh, today we have people so timid. Well, I just want to give you a few thoughts for today. <laughs> I just, I we're, we're just going to have, let's see, a little overhead here, about four little points for you today. Keep your thumb for next week. And just, 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 just. That's, that's, that's the pulpit aflame with righteousness today. You know, we, we see that in every area of the church. The church unwilling to apply spiritual discipline in a firm but loving way as the, spirit, as, as the scriptures dictate. Uh, and un, unwillingness to take clear stands on, on biblical-based separation, clear biblical principles applied to human life and the way people live. And indeed in our music today, sort of the dumbing down of America and some of our music. I heard one the other day, it said, Holy Father, you're the one, I'm in love with your only son and your righteousness is exceeded by your love, by your love, your righteousness is exceeded by your love. I'm sorry, that's not true. Because God so loved the world, according to John 3:16, but that love is limited. That is to say, if we don't meet God's holy standards for entrance into heaven by Jesus Christ's work on the cross, if, if his just standards are not met through the blood of Christ, we don't get into heaven, even though he loves the world. I think of that great old hymn of the church, How I love thy law, O Lord, uh, daily joy its truths afford. In its constant light I go, wise to conquer every foe. Sweeter are thy words to me than all earthly good to be. Safe I walk thy truth, my light, hating falsehood, loving right. You see, that's a very uh, increasingly unusual notion in the church of Jesus Christ. We've thrown out that pedagogue. You, you look at this whole ramification on society. Uh, you can see it in the BPA. The BPA is what I call the supermarket test of the pedagogue's presence in society. It's the brat's parile. Oh, Jimmy, don't kick that man. Would you like to be kicked? And now you're spitting on him. He doesn't like you to spit all that stuff on him. I don't pull his hair. You don't even know him, Johnny. It happened because we can't say no. There is no pedagogue who learned, who said, just say no. That there is a non-optional group of biblical principles. When God made us, he made us a certain way. He gave us a certain structure. And that structure has a certain function in our life. And if we violate that structure, that function in our life, we pay the price. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. If I give you a, 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 a chisel, I say, by the way, don't use that chisel as a screwdriver. You say, well, I'm free to do whatever I want. Free from the law, a happy condition. Well, all right, you use that, you use that uh, chisel and start to unscrew screws, you'll get bent out of shape. Because God has made, as he's made his scientific world of physical cause and effect, so he's made a world of moral government. And if you kick against the pricks of that moral government, you will hurt your foot. Now, number one, a classical illusion. I suggest we've kicked the pedagogue out. Secondly, there's a great confusion today. Because of our throwing out that pedagogue, that schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, we've, we've got great, great moral confusion. First of all, in the principles of law itself. You know, uh, I always think when I think about my Harvard and Oxford years, that great uh, song in Job, you know, where, where may wisdom be found? The cave says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not in me. Oxford says, it is not in me. I can't do my Ted Kennedy, so I won't try Harvard, but you know what I mean. 
Uh, well, somebody said that a weak mind is like a microscope. Uh, it focuses and obsesses and blows up small things and misses big things altogether. I was sitting in a class with maybe the greatest jurisprudence of our day, uh, Professor Ronald Dworkin. He was doing a seminal book that was thought to be the book of legal philosophy uh, of this era. And I, with about six other graduate students, was sort of critiquing it, commenting on it in a, in a series of, of seminars with Professor Dworkin. And I, I finally raised my hand about the third day. I said, Professor Dworkin, uh, excuse me if I ask a pretty basic and simple question here, but you uh, want us to take rights seriously. You point out how people's rights all around the world are being taken away, people are being oppressed. Uh, I just have the question, a simple one, where do rights come from? I mean, why ought we to take rights seriously? I mean, if a mosquito comes on my hand, I slap it, right? A person gets in my way, why don't I kill him? I mean, what, where, where, where does this come from? He said, very good, very good point, yes, very good point. He said, uh, he said I'd, like you to, I'd like you to look at that for me uh, over the source, and I, maybe my book is a little weak on that. I said, well, Professor, I don't mean to be irreverent here, but see, I have a little different legal philosophy. I believe that God is, man is made in the image of God, that they have the divine impress and stamp of God's character, and that we are regulated in our dealings with other people by, by God's standards, God's principles. Hmm, hmm. He said, well, I'll, I'll try to answer that question next session. So three sessions came. I raised my hand. He never answered the question. Finally, the course was over. Uh, I noticed in the London Times when they reviewed his book, said, Professor Dworkin has written a brilliant book. Uh, however, he never does deal with where rights come from. You see, any of you could have told the answer to that question, but here's Professor Dworkin in his Savile Row suit in Oxford, and he's focusing and obsessing on all these little things and missing the big picture altogether. Why are there rights? Where, where, where do our laws come from? What is the basis of what ought to be in society? I went to the moral philosophy class of R.M. Hare, the greatest moral philosopher in the world. Philosophy means love of wisdom. You know, moral means moral. I came in there with a hush to hear what this wise man would say. What was he doing? Well, he's doing the same thing he'd done for 12 consecutive weeks, trying to quantify moral language and scientific nomenclature. Okay, let's take today the phrase, it is raining. Mm, yes. Let's, uh, let's say that's a backward E, that's the frastic. Hmm. Well, Professor, hey, what about if someone says it's raining? Hey, yes, let's then talk about them. Oh, someone says, we'll put an S here, maybe a sigma, yes. Someone says it's Well, Professor, hey, what if someone says it is raining and it's not raining? Hey, yes, the factual deprivation. Let's put a negative sign here. What about if someone says it's not raining, but it really is and he's lying? Hey, yes, we need a new stick, a new stick, news, yes, new stick, yes, we'll put a, a, a week after week after week. Obsessive. These people are like bodybuilders. You know, bodybuilders don't use their muscles. They just want to show them off. And uh, they, they, develop, they develop these tremendous intellectual biceps and they stand before a mirror slicked up. And they get professors' conferences and they walk down the aisle, you know, to a pretty girl is like a melody or something and kind of, they, they flex. I mean, that, that's what wisdom is today because we've kicked the pedagogue out. Secondly, it leads to confusion in our public policy. If there's one basic nostrum of public policy I follow, it's that what you tax, you get less of. What you subsidize, you get more of. And we tax almost everything we want more of and subsidize everything we want less of. Why? Because we're interested in what is, not what ought to be. Uh, we, we don't want to let the moral or the religious impinge on our public policy. So 1960s, we see that 12% the black population in our country is illegitimate. Four uh, percent of the, uh, the and we said we got a problem here. We're going to have to start subsidizing fornication. 
Why? Well, because people are having babies out of wedlock. In order to deal with that, we can't, we've got to put morality to one side, whether it's right or not to fornicate. We've just got to subsidize. And all of a sudden now, 68% of the minority population is illegitimate. 25% of the white population is, is, is illegitimate. And in, in, in Minneapolis, 87% of the American Indian population is illegitimate. So it's subsidizing. Then we see divorce starting to rise. Always been 1%, half of 1%. Then it takes a bend up after the war in the 50s. It's 4 or 5%. 1960s, people say, well, we're starting to get people divorced. Now, you might not like divorce. I understand that. We've got to accommodate people because they're getting divorced. We don't care about how people ought to live, whether marriage is a contract, whether it's an important covenant. Let's have no-fault divorce. So we essentially subsidize the decision to get divorced. And now uh, half of all marriages are ending in divorce. And the feminization of poverty, as it's called, is responsible for divorce. And the, the, the fatherless children are becoming the, the delinquents of our inner cities are bred by divorce. We're subsidizing something that we ought not to subsidize because we're not asking what things ought to be. We're simply saying, well, that's the way things are. All of a sudden we say, well, people are gambling. You might not like gambling, but keep your blue, moral blue nose out of there. Keep the pedagogue out of this decision. Because we don't want to get morality mixed up with it. We, what we ought to do is, is uh, just have gambling, have it state-sponsored, and, and have taxes collected from it. Now we've got a wave of gambling mania in our country. We've never had so many embezzlements, so many homes being broken up by gambling. Well, because we, we, we just want to see how things actually are, you see, not, not how things ought to be. And now the beat drum is starting to beat on prostitution. Yes, you might not go to a prostitute yourself. Yes, you have that biblical notion that a whoremonger will be brought to a piece of bread. Yes, yes. But people are doing it. So if people are doing it, the law has to accommodate it. We're only interested in how people behave in our society. That's what our law is. Positive law coming down on people. And if mores change, then we've got to change with it. And so the result is, let's, let's take this horrible, destructive thing called prostitution that victimizes women who get involved in it, breaks up families, brings all kinds of uh, uh, tremendous penalties to people. And instead of taking, uh, instead of regulating it, we'll just have it and, and, and maybe collect taxes from it. This whole public policy of, of, of calamity that we've had over the last 20, 30 years, it's led to the destruction of our way of life as we know it, has come because we've kicked the pedagogue out. Not only in our public policy, but uh, even in, in our church life, we've seen uh, what's happened to a church of Jesus Christ that doesn't hold up before people the moral, holy law of God, that doesn't say anything about Mount Sinai, only talks about Mount Zion. You see what happens to a church in its ways and its standards of behavior. All right, so first of all, we have a classical illusion here. Secondly, we, we have a, a great confusion. Third, let's talk to, uh, talk to the cure of this problem. My humble suggestion is that we have to invite the pedagogue back into American life. Go out to the gutter, shake his hand, and say, could you, could you come on in? We need you. We need, you, we need the pedagogue in, in three areas. First of all, as the Apostle Paul makes clear, the pedagogue, the schoolmaster, has an important function in bringing people to Christ. We know that the law is insufficient to save a person. No one is saved by a law or, 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 or by keeping moral principles or being a good person. We know that. But on the other hand, the schoolmaster, with his sort of fierce look in his eye, has an important role in bringing people to Christ. The law was our schoolmaster. The pedagogue was our schoolmaster that brought us to Christ. Uh, Martin Luther used to say, uh, before you dispense the grace from 
Mount Zion. You should thunder with the law from Mount Sinai. When God blew that trumpet uh, at, at Mount Sinai and the earth started to shake and uh, the mountains started to smoke, that was an ind indication that God wanted to get the people's attention. Not to his sort of ten suggestions, but to those abiding moral principles that are not optional for any individual, not optional for any culture, not optional for any church or society. And yes, once we see the condemning power of God's moral standard and how, 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 false, how, how much we fall short of it, then we see the wonderful freedom of God's grace. And we don't need the schoolmaster anymore. So the moral law has an important purpose, number one, in bringing us to Christ in repentance. Secondly, it has an important function in being written on the very heart of the person who has come to Christ. You see, there are two functions of law, and we often get them confused. They're both biblically based. Uh, they're both important. One is the law is a harness. The law is a harness. Uh, again, Luther said, every person is a donkey ridden by either God or the devil. The principle is here, here's the will of the sovereign. Here are you. You have your will. Here's the will of the sovereign. The, the sovereign takes a harness over you, and when you start going like this, says, come on back this way. And you've got the bit in your mouth. You're the ass talked about in the psalm that has to be led by bit and bridle. The, there the law is threatening. It, it is punishing. It is punitive. And it chafes on you. Now, the, Paul says in 1 Timothy that the law is not for the good man, but for the bad man. It's for the whoremonger and the fornicator and the kidnapper and the sodomite. It's for a person to, to, to see if they're going to go off in a wrong way, uh, the consequences in their life. And so the person who's under that kind of law says, man, how, how can I get out from under here? Everything I want to do, the law says no to. I want to lust and the, my conscience says no. I want, to, I want to swear. I want to be bitter. I want to gossip. And all of a sudden, this little conscience in black robes is saying no, no, no. You're doing something wrong. And I can't even do the things I want to do. I, I've got this desire somehow to do right occasionally, but I knowingly do things that are not right. This creates that tension of the law imposed on people. Now, that's the reason we have the criminal law. The whole purpose of the criminal law is knowing that you want to drive 85 miles an hour. They say, no, you can only drive 55 or 65. And the average person who's under that theory of law regulates his behavior by whether or not he sees a car with a little red light on the top. Uh, that's the law. If the law is not there, I'm only concerned about avoiding punishment, so I will you know, give the full use and power of the car is made for on a beautiful, sunshiny California afternoon. All of a sudden, I see the little car parked under the viaduct up there. It looks like a little... And then I slow right down, you see. Now, that's one view of the law, but it's not the only view of the law. That is the law in the pre-Christian sense. Before we become Christian, the law is threatening. We want to do our own thing. We want to be iniquitous. We want to do like the people in the book of Judges. Everybody does what's right in his own eyes, and this terrible, threatening harness is always afflicting our conscience. But then, after we become Christians, that law is written on the fleshy tables of our heart. Because the Bible says the law is not only for the bad man, but the law is also for the confused man, the good man. After all, doesn't the psalmist, who's a man after God's own heart, says the law is a light unto my feet, a lamp unto my path. Oh, how I love the law. You see, the, the law is a guidepost as well as a harness. 
Now, if you have a guidepost, if that's your view of the law, it's much different from being a harness. For example, if someone is coming here and wants to visit Master's College and doesn't know about the California freeway system, doesn't have Dr. Potter nicely to pick him up and drive him here, and all of a sudden there's a sign up says, America's greatest college, Master's College, this way. You don't say, oh man, there's another piece of legalism. Why do I have, what? all right, I'm going to go a few blocks, but as soon as I can get off the path and, and not be condemned by anybody, I'm going to get off that path as soon as I can. No, what you want to do is perfectly comply with that law, don't you? Not because there's some external weight on you, condemning you if you don't, but you've got that law of God in your heart. You want to do God's will perfectly. You don't want to escape punishment so no one no one comes down on you for being an uh, inappropriate uh, uh, Christian. You, you want to do it because you want to get to the destination that has been pointed out to you. And that is most of the law, the civil law of America. You want to know how to leave your estate to your children. And so you want to study the law to make sure it comes on to just the right way to leave it to your children or master's college or what you're going to do with your estate. You want to know, you, you make sure, if you, want, you want to do it legally. You want to know if you sell real estate, there'll be no differences of opinion between the two people. Everything is done appropriately. Not because you're a bad person and want to get out from under the law, but because you have a purpose to be under the law. Uh, you, and, and, you, and you love it. It becomes written in the table of your heart. Just like you don't need the schoolmaster after, after faith comes in. Why? Because now the law is not something over you, but it's in you. That, that uh, A driving force of grace in your life, giving you both the desire and the power to live God's way. I had a fellow I was representing in a criminal case. He was one of the most successful business people in America. And now he was sitting in the dock. Oh, was he afraid all the time, every day. It was fearful. Can you imagine the United States versus you? Imagine if you were sitting in a courtroom. United States of America versus me, that's a mismatch. They got 20,000 FBI agents. They got billions of dollars they can throw into this, and I'm an individual. I don't think I did anything wrong. To him, everything was foreboding. Everything about the law was bad. The judge was stern. The prosecutor was mean. The jury was eyeing him every moment with those gimlet eyes trying to read his character. Everything was bad about the whole process until the jury came back and said not guilty. This guy who was from Georgia said, I'm happy as a pig in slop. <laughs> I don't know if that's exactly what he said, but something like that. And he walked around and he embraced the jurors and he shook the prosecutor's hand. And, and he would say, is this a great country or what? Oh, this is a one. The legal system, the jury system, the Constitution, it's wonderful. Now, what happened? He went from being under condemnation to being acquitted and declared righteous by the jury. Did the law change? No. But his attitude toward it did. Now he loved the law more, not less. He loved the country more, not less. Because the old schoolmaster, that mean-looking prosecutor with the stick, said goodbye. They had the big party and sent him on his way. But now he was more eager to be compliant with the holy law of God, not less. That's the purpose of the law. So first of all, it's important because it leads to repentance. Secondly, it's important because it's written on our heart. And third, it's important because it's a, it's a, it's a key element of God's system of reward. You know, I used to sort of kind of think that maybe the humanistic idea was a little better, do right for its own sake. But God doesn't have that principle, does he? God says, I have a cause and effect in life. 
And, and you can't get around it. You sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption, whether you're a Christian or not. You sow to the spirit and you will reap a spiritual benefit. And have you ever noticed how Jesus describes that spiritual law of cause and effect by attaching to every condition a promise and to every promise a condition? He holds out to us these beautiful promises. And then he puts the if of the condition. And it occurred to me that if I were going to be the kind of person God wants me to be, I would start having to take God's principles seriously. You know, Esau's problem, the reason why God did not like Esau and he loved Jacob, was because Esau saw those promises and didn't care about them much and wasn't willing to meet the condition for them, was willing to sell it out for a mess of pottage. And that's the Edom, the nation with whom God is angry forever. So all of a sudden I started getting out my Bible and seeing what promises God had for me. Blessed is he that considereth the poor, for God will deliver him in the time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive. And suddenly I saw principles of God's word all through scripture that God holds out for us as, as emblems of his unchanging character and his desire for my life. And all of a sudden I started praying, oh God, help me to be the kind of person you ought to be. And then came the most critical discovery of my, my spiritual walk. All the promises that God gives the person who will seriously meditate on God's law, God's word. You know, Psalm chapter 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. There it was in Joshua. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt uh, meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. And then Jesus in the New Testament, if I abide in you and my words abide, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you will and it will come true for you. So at Harvard Law School, I remember starting this exercise. I memorized scripture. Uh, verses, and I started committing whole passages of the Bible to memory. The subway ride, uh, while I was in the, the summer clerkship position in a big firm in New York City, the subway ride from Brooklyn to Manhattan allowed me to go through the complete book of Hebrews, both, both four, and I, I decided to commit that book to memory, not just as a memory exercise, but to, to munch on it, to mull on it, to meditate on it, to consider it, to make it part of my life. And just as I completed that exercise, God all of a sudden opened the mail, and here it was. I was selected one of 20 of 600 students to be on the Harvard Law Review. I'm sure they mixed up my grades, but God knows how to do that occasionally. I said, hmm. Even as dumb as I am, I figured it out. That God will reward us in ways we can't understand spiritually in other areas of our life if we will delight in his word and delight in his law and, and, and have that eagerness that the psalmist shows in one psalm, Psalm 119, to have his law part of our heart. And since then, it seems that the more that God has allowed me to open up his scripture and his word in the interior meditation of my heart, it's as though I don't even have to push on doors. They kind of open like supermarket doors in front of me. And so I challenge you today to make God's word a part of your heart. Chew on it. Meditate on it. Mull on it. Take the very promises of God that represent his eternal principles and, and, and commit them to your heart, mind, and life. 
You see, we do have a problem today in American society. We're living in a calamitous age. And I suggest to you a big part of it is because we've thrown out an indispensable party and we've bred a generation of monsters. We've put moral midgets behind the cars that have uh, 400 horsepower and we've removed all the moral guardrails of society and given them the car keys and said, go, go have at it. And their lives are ruined and destroyed. And it's the church as, 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 as God's own agent of preaching the gospel that has been deficient. Because we, too, have forgotten the true purpose of the moral law. No, not to save anybody, but to lead people to Christ. And then to be written on the heart of the believer and lived out in practical acts of goodness and righteousness uh, in, in our age. And then to be meditated on and made a very, very part of, of uh, our own life and experience. Uh, if we do this, if we meditate on God's word, we'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Our roots will go deep into that water of God's word. And then we can expect by a spiritual law of cause and effect that never changes uh, fruit to appear on our branches in due season. Let's uh, stand up and pray. How I love thy law, O Lord. It is my meditation all the day. Lord, we thank thee for thy law that statement of thy eternal principles as Moses came down from the mountain said here's the law of God choose life Lord we know only too well that we are utterly incapable of fulfilling its commands all utterly incapable without thy grace of, of, of even living up to the most minimal standards of our own life and condition so Lord we pray that thy grace would uh, come into our hearts that thou wouldst empower us, give us a new delight and new desire to walk in thy way. And Lord, help us to know the great fruit that comes from meditating in thy holy, eternal, and unchangeable word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.